Hello and welcome back to Reckoning Higher Ed, a podcast dedicated to understanding the pressures facing higher ed and how higher education may evolve in the future. I am Jeff DiGiovanni and I am the host. When you think about all the things that universities do and then focus that on what is the primary purpose for higher education, and it is the student. That is the ultimate reason why higher education exists. In light of that, it seemed that having the student, as it were, on this podcast is necessary. As such, my guest today is an undergraduate student. Her name is Katherine Walsh. She is a junior at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, studying economics and international affairs with minors in business administration and Spanish for the business professions. I got introduced to Catherine through uh, a publication where the Wall Street Journal had inquired with her as to how higher education may evolve in the next 10 years. I found her responses very insightful and seasoned. And so I reached out to her and she agreed to be on the podcast. So thank you for coming, Catherine. I'm, I'm particularly excited about having you as a guest because certainly in part, you represent the type of person that higher education is trying to meet, that the needs that we're trying to meet. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. So thank you. Oh, of course. So happy to be here. Yeah. And, and what's interesting, and I'd like you know people to have an insight is how I even got connected or how we got connected to each other is in November 10th, 2020, I came across an article in the Wall Street Journal called Nine Ways College Could Evolve in the Next Decade. And the subtitle is Wall Street Journal readers offer predictions and suggestions for how higher education will change from perfecting remote classes to new revenue models for schools. And as I was reading through these, there were some uh, a variety of responses, some from a more seasoned perspective, some more from just a consumer perspective, and came across one, the, the heading of this one input, which was you, Catherine Walsh, is uh, <laughs> it's called Not Just Job Skills. And reading in there, it says, in my college education, I'm looking for developing skills not only for a future job, but also to think critically about any issues, even if it's not in my field. I feel that education will continue to be greatly valued, but the focus of education will change. Right now, I've come, I have to take some classes that are not directly relevant to my career path, but they make me a more well-rounded and intelligent person. I worry that the focus will shift so much to forming polished, focused workers that universities will not have students take classes for the sake of making them better people. And I, I just found that a very, uh, like a wise type of perspective. But before we go into that, tell me how, how did this even happen? Like, how did you get connected with the wall street journal for something like this? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so as any, you know, college student, on the job hunt looking for that summer internship, I've been trying to get as involved in LinkedIn as possible. So one part of that was joining a group called Wall Street Journal Advisors Noted. I had attended um, one of the Wall Street Journal's online full day kind of job summits um, that just had some speakers about how to do virtual interviews and how to kind of navigate what's going on in the world today with so many things shutting down. Um, and so from there, I joined the group. And on that page, they just, um, one of the writers just posted the question, kind of posing the question to anyone in the audience of what do you think education has looked like? What do you hope to get out of your education if you're currently a student? Um, and, you know, as a student, I sat there and I 
kind of started to think about that because I was in the midst of, you know, that internship hunt. And so kind of wondering how does this internship, you know, propel to the career I want or the job I want or the life I want. Um, I sat there and probably thought much longer than I needed to, given I had homework due that night. Um, and I just kind of <laughs> thought about how I want, you know, my education to be all encompassing. So, you know, I typed out my response on that post um, and that writer who had posted that actually just followed up with me in the email. So we emailed back and forth. Um, There's a short phone call and then they basically just had my, my comments ready for publish. And so then I sent them a headshot and they turned that into cartoon there. <laughs> and it's a great, a great likeness. And, and except <laughs> you, you don't have uh, red and blue hair at the ends there. I noticed. No, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> The timing of this seemed, it was it pretty locked in, like like you were at this job summit and uh, and this happened quickly afterwards then? So it was all it part was, of a streamline it, kind of thing? Um, it was all within the course of a month. Um, I think that's because after that job summit, I did just try and stay very engaged on their LinkedIn page, just hoping to um, kind of find other connections. So I think just my regular regularly subscribing to what they were posting um, also helped it be more of like a, a congruent kind of, or yeah, streamline sort of situation. That's very cool. And, and what a neat opportunity. So, and this was the LinkedIn group. You said uh, Wall Street Journal Advisors, was it noted? Was that the word? Noted. Yes. Noted. Okay. So Catherine, tell me a little bit more about you, your major. Um, you know, I, I kind of gave the, the orientation earlier that you're uh, an economics and international affairs major. Uh, talk a, a little what that means, some of your experiences in that, and and kind of what you're looking towards as you graduate. Because you're a senior, is that correct? I'm a junior. Thank you're goodness. a junior. Okay, so Take you got a, you got potentially another year and a semester finish that you know and and so a bit more time to figure out exactly where the path is going to hopefully lead with that. Um, so at my university, my uh, economics and interdisciplinary international affairs are within the same. Um, the same college. So I'm in the College of Arts and Sciences. There is an option to do business economics, but one thing that I'm really hoping for is that my economics major is really international and macro focused, um, which you kind of get with blending it that way. So my interdisciplinary international affairs means that I've taken um, a bunch of courses from a bunch of different disciplines. So there is, you know, the baseline history classes. I had to take some of your basic political science courses language requirements, um, and of course, a bunch of political science or political science and economics courses along with that. So really trying to get the full coverage, the full base to kind of give me the opportunity to take it where I want to. And so I think international affairs has really given me the, the, the capabilities and the, the skills to take any issue um, and look at it from that international perspective. And so with my interests in economics, it's very much looking at economic development on the macro scale um, and just a lot more trends in that sense of where are, you know, where are cultures going, where are communities going and how can, you know, different economic incentives aid that. Okay. And your minors are business administration and Spanish for the business professions. Uh, so how do, do you have a sense of what that might lead you to uh, in a business sector or, you know, what might be next um, after your undergrad? I wish I could say there was a, a fully laid out plan, um, but there's really multiple different paths that I still need to explore more and know where I fit best and where I'm the, you know, obviously the most happy. Um, I could definitely see myself working 
in private sector, really just kind of developing the job skills and learning how to work my way up in a business that would ideally be doing you know, international, um, international business, dealing with different cultures and that sort of thing. But long term, I can definitely see myself going more into the public sector, um, figuring out ways to apply my skills and my interest um, in sort of a very analytical role in whatever I'm doing, taking in a lot of information and trying to figure out where are the trends and how can we, you know, make little tweaks and changes to make a big difference in the lives of individuals. I, you know, really know that I want to work with people and I want to work for people. So kind of public service long-term, I can definitely see myself working in the government in a very analytical way. Very cool. Well, thank you for that, that um, different viewpoint yeah. on, on your background. Descriptive and interest enough to in not actually give any job descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I actually think it's good to not have mm-hmm. it so defined in some ways that you have the notion what you're going for, but the space is broad. And if, if we've learned anything about where, where work is going in the work sector is that there's flexibility and the idea that training might be a lifelong uh, activity and not just something you do and get your bachelor's and, or master's or whatever and have your whole career that there will be work, retrain, work, retrain. So it, it will take a, a more of a, of a, or almost an organic path um, rather than a, a well-defined there, path. Just the, the idea that, you know, you don't want to get a you know bachelor's degree and then have to retrain or basically go back to school when you realize you want to do something different. That, you know, is a very common thing to happen where I've got friends that are already seniors and they're realizing that what they've been studying for the past four years isn't actually the dream job anymore. And so that's why I feel like having an education that isn't just skills based is so crucial because when you have just the just kind of the breadth of knowledge to be able to learn different types of subjects that keeps your mind open to these other opportunities. And it also just teaches you how to think and learn in different ways that makes that, you know, retraining down the road a lot easier. Ernie. Yeah. uh, That's a great point. You take the grand view of what's happening in college and sort of the, the demands and the rhetoric going on in the media about education is, is what you hear through these articles is, you know, people want, you know, jobs, people want jobs, they want job training, this, this idea of, of, if you want to take the extreme, this, uh, you know, liberal arts degree, you know, uh, like an English degree that may not have direct marketable skills. That's, you know, taken to extreme again, like, or philosophy degree. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're saying that, like, you're just wasting your money kind of attitude and, and countering counterbalancing that on the same day, as actually it was a couple days earlier now that I'm looking at it is on November 9th, mm-hmm. 2020, uh, there was an article published in the wall street journal called this college degree is brought to you by Amazon. And the subtitle being as university budgets are squeezed and student debt loads rise an era of close knit relationships between companies and universities is underway. And that really struck me, especially what your comments struck me because in this article, for example, they talk about uh, technical degrees, especially, um, and in one case where a large company, Siemens, which is, I believe, uh, if they are not still, I think, I'm pretty sure at one point they were the largest employer on the planet from, from a company perspective, and uh, they were providing software instruction curriculum 
technical support and sophisticated gadgetry to make uh, help a student and fellow industrial systems engineering uh, students uh, basically give them those skills training. And when what really hit me was it wasn't a financial partnership. It wasn't a scholarship. It wasn't just a co-op. They were providing, you know, the software, you know, technical support. I get that. But they were also providing instruction and curriculum. And that really struck me because historically curriculum is housed in the hands of the, of the colleges and universities and with support and partnership, perhaps. Um, and, and this struck me as a, a big change. So again, I come back now to your comments mm-hmm. that, Hey, there's something maybe bigger. So, you know, kind of feel out that space for me a little bit and, and maybe reflect on, you know, does, does any of this concern you or what are your thoughts? Is there limits? Is there, you know, good and bad? Just, you know, feel that out for me a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think kind of, it's all about finding the right balance. I think kind of going forward, you know, the, the particular skills and the direct association with a company versus like the overarching kind of like the person versus the employee is kind of how I try to sort of separate it in my mind. And so in my personal experience as an econ student, I've had business classes that are taught in the evenings by people that have full-time careers. These are like adjunct professors who are just really interested to come in and teach one class. So while that's very different than what you said of a a company actually providing the teaching, um, that close connection between teachers having the real world experience in certain, um, in certain studies and in certain degrees, that definitely makes sense. Um, Because they're just bringing a fresh perspective and also being to explain, are able to explain what really is impactful and necessary for the job that students want to do. So I think those classes have been really interesting where my professors, you know, teaching information systems, you know, are working in the information system sector. Um, and I think there's a lot of, lot of benefit to that. Um, but I think that if your entire education is just taught by, if your entire education is just the skills given or instructed by a company or a company that even a company that you hope to work for, you're kind of pigeonholing yourself in your abilities and in kind of what your mindset is as a person coming out of university. So I think, you know, while having a class with like those real life skills, at the same time, you need to be able to have classes that are unrelated to some extent that just kind of develop your your skills or your ability to think as an academic or like as an intellectual. Um, so I think that just kind of continues your general kind of development, your general growth. So my, you know, these business classes teach me the, the real skills that I'm going to be hopefully applying in the day to day in the job. But, you know, my political science courses and my philosophy and theology classes, they're giving me the skills to have interesting conversations and to keep being curious and to think deeply about the world and where my place is in it. And I think both of those directions and both of those ideas really have a place in university and you can't let the scale tip only towards one type of education versus the other. I think also I'd want to comment that I guess this is probably more not sure how to directly address the fact of a company being so involved. I think there's definitely a place for academia. And I think there's something about that. Um, that again, I think my, I'd be a bit concerned if all of a sudden my professors were brought to you by 
and then whatever company. Um, Cause even if they have the real life skills, there's just skills, the more like day-to-day logistic skills of being a professor, um, I think can be quite different and just the ability to deal with, t- deal with college students on a day-to-day basis um, that can make that much trickier. I think, wow, that is, I think that is a very insightful statement that you, you <laughs> ended on there uh, because uh, I'll, I'll, as you were saying it, I, I, I had this thought and I could, I, the simplest way I can think of putting it is what is the mission mm-hmm. of a company? What is the mission of Amazon? Mm-hmm. The mission of Amazon is not to create better people or develop people. It is to sell products and make money. And that's not a wrong thing. It's not a bad mm-hmm. thing. It's not immoral. I don't, I'm not judging that. But if you just look at the purpose and what they're doing by, you know, any company who's supporting education is they have a need and they're trying to fill that need, which is certain skill sets, the mission. And this is really to your point, Mm -hmm. um, supporting your point of a university or college is ultimately to grow people, to educate people. And we talk endlessly at the university about student centeredness and and everything we do is around the student. In fact, we're talking about fall planning right now. And what we're talking about is what the needs of the students are. We're not talking about what the needs of the faculty Mm -hmm. are. And, and so I think your point, uh, if, if couched, you know, is, you know, very broadly and philosophically is that, you know, if you, what the institution that is bringing you something, what is it, what is its goal, you know? And, and I think it sounds like that's what you're trying to, you're addressing with that comment. Definitely just that. Yeah. Kind of, I guess also everyone has different reasons and their own mission as they enter university. So I feel like there is a place that some people, their mission there is to get those skills. Um, But I think that kind of the mission of growing as a person just needs to be emphasized and placed along with that mission to become a good employee and to learn those skills. I agree. Sure. And and something I'm going to jump back a little bit. You were talking about uh, how you got connected with the Wall Street Journal on this particular project. And when asked the question, you said three words that really struck me. You said you thought about what you want out of a career or job. I guess that you mm-hmm. sort of put those two together in life. And um, so I think your perspective is just very, I think, broader than, hey, I just want a paycheck at the end of these four years. But you you had a, a bigger picture in mind. Can you, and, and I know this may or may not be a stress, so speak to this in, in the space as far as you can comfortably speak. But uh, one of the, again, I go back to why I think it's very interesting to have you in particular on here is that you represent at least in large part, a a large number of the folks we're trying to serve, which is the age group. And every generation has its own culture, its own value sets that that, that vary from generation to generation. So, um, and, and really what I'm trying to get at here is, what are the, the, the cultural values of your generation, or at least for you, as you think they might represent your generation uh, and what they want out of uh, you know, higher education? Well, again, for this one, I feel like I need to say that you know, my experience is going to be very different than other people. So you know, I'm always cautious about speaking full for my entire generation because I feel like it's so unique and different even there's just so many different groups even within my generation um but for me given i was in a position that college was always 
part of the plan. Um, and so it was always an expectation, like within my family structure that I would be attending a four-year university. Um, and so then from there, it's sort of, what was I, you know, hoping to get out of that and the values that, um, drew me towards, you know, my certain program or my certain career field was definitely, um, finding something that I'm just naturally good at, or just, you know, like there's a little bit of natural skills there that, um, you can kind of use. I definitely was not built to be an engineer. Um, so kind of, I guess, okay, sorry, going back a little bit, um, kind of thinking about heading into college, it was much more about what don't I want out of the experience versus what am I looking for in the experience? So I knew all the jobs and, you know, the skills and the crazy experiences that I, I didn't want that didn't really reflect who I felt I was sort of this, you know, crazy partying, just kind of waste the four years having fun. Um, that was not kind of who I was or not what I knew I was looking to get out of, um, in my education. But at the same time, I also knew I didn't want to spend the whole time in the library because I knew that those experiences in the dorms and interacting with people from all walks of life was really going to help me grow and develop as a person. So I think when students are trying to figure out which college to go to or um, what, you know, what they want out of college, they're really trying to think kind of internal forces, external forces, short-term and long-term. So lots of different directions to go with. But, you know, some people think, how can I find a university that reflects my personal values? So for me, that is, you know, the Catholic Jesuit belief. That is something where, um, though it's not, you know, over, it's, it's overarching throughout the university culture, but it's not um, forced upon any students. So I knew that that, that base was there um, and that base in service and justice um, and kind of involvement in the community. And so kind of my internal part of wanting to interact with communities and work with other people is what drew me to a more urban university. So kind of get more to external factors where um, is my, where my university is, is that going to make me feel like I'm more part of the city, more part of like the world? Or am I going to feel much more secure on an individual campus where, um, you know, kind of all, all the activities are happening in there, which kind of give you really like the, the classic, almost like gated kind of university experience. Um, and then in the short, short term, college students were definitely thinking about what are those four years going to look like? And I feel so bad for the, you know, the freshmen that lost their senior year to, to COVID and they lost their senior year of high school, I'm sorry, to COVID and seniors in college. Um, and that how that experience has so drastically changed because um, there's no way that we could have predicted that or they could have included that in their calculations for college. But we're really thinking about those four years, you know, socially, are we going to be able to find friends and people that have similar interests to us? Are we going to find people that have similar career aspirations um, and want to kind of find, like, go to end up in different, same parts of the, the world and the career field as us as well? But then we also need to think very long term where, you know, is this university going to have an alumni base that's going to help us get farther? But also is this university going to be something that, you know, 20 years down the road, we're going to be proud of talking about to other people? And are we going to, you know, instantly be able to share the life lessons that we learned in college when we're already in the career? We've already used the skills that we've learned in, in our majors. 
are we going to have the kind of intellectual wherewithal, intellectual strength? Um, strength isn't quite the right word, but um, the emotional capacity, that's not quite it either. I'm sorry. Um, are you thinking resilience, perhaps? Yeah, kind of resilience or just open-mindedness um, to mm-hmm. just have interesting conversations with other people. That, that was wow. a lot. Well, I think you just hit something. <laughs> that There was a lot in there. And and I was I was have some notes and we can unpack mm-hmm. some of that. But let's start with where you just finished because uh, I, I, I think, and, and this is very well documented, is that the mental mm-hmm. health challenges that many of, of this generation experience relative to previous generations. And mental health is nothing new to experience. It seems like the prevalence was going up when in reality. It was just becoming understood mm-hmm. and talked about and people were, it was, it was less of a, a, a stigma associated with having certain mental health issues. Um, but certainly the incidence is, is skyrocketing or at least increasing significantly over time. And, uh, and resilience is one of those things. It's, it's kind of like the, the old adage, I don't know if it's an old adage, but an adage where you seek the I- irony of seeking happiness is you'll never find it. If you seek it, you seek resilience and happiness is one of those things that come along the way. It's part of the package because deal adversity is not a question. Adversity is an inevitability. Being resilient allows you to persist through those adversities and thus not be torn by them. Now, and, and there's a whole range of mental health issues of mental health diagnoses and such and experiences. So it's a bit of a blunt statement, but I think generationally that really applies um, and universities and the, the growth of mental health uh, support is has been something very interesting. So talk a little bit more about the, that resilience issue. Yes. If you had asked me this question, um, I would have had a completely different answer if 12 months ago compared to now. I think this year has taught all of us what it means to be resilient in the big and the small ways. I think one of the, the most difficult concepts that I'm still trying to wrap my head around is the way that the technology that us, you know, as college students, as young people love and thrive and are social on has just become almost more of a burden. Um, Just having our classes have to be online and having social media and Zoom calls be the only way to communicate with our friends has really kind of flipped the script on us. Um, I know my dad likes to make the comment that, oh yeah, you know, we're like, the iGen growing up with, you know, screens in front of our faces from such a young age. But I, I can tell you that my friends and I, you know, when we're done with our Zoom calls, we just want to stop staring at our screens. And so this year has really tested our mental health in that sense, where it's how is something that we rely on so heavily in a positive way kind of become our lifeline and our only option in other ways um, for our education. When you say flip the script, that's interesting because what uh, and the way I, I just my, it hit my brain is that what is was always known to be a great facilitator of information, all these social media outlets and such, suddenly became a burden and potentially an overwhelming burden because um, with all the duress and it was a it was it's heavy duress and I think your your point is well made about um, the stress and detachment that a lot of students felt through COVID because of um, just suddenly having to switch uh, with no, no 
planning. It's not something they did or knew was coming. None of us did. But from a student perspective, it was just sort of, oh, the light switch. Now you're on this. And all this news were, were coming through every single possible outlet, overwhelming. And, and just, you know, all they had was this this sort of stream or tsunami of negativity coming through all the news outlets, which uh, that's what I, at least that's what I heard you, like I interpreted what you said about this, this flipping the, you know, the suddenly uh, what we love to post online and, and neat fun things and maybe hear some cool things and connect with people suddenly became a burden. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that where you were going with that? Absolutely. And you know, just you speaking it back makes me think that when we say flip the script, everyone's gone through, you know, so many changes this year, but for college students, so many of us all of a sudden were back living at home when we never expected to. Um, you know, <laughs> it's coming up on the the one year anniversary, you know, of you know the U.S. borders being shut down and stuff like that. But from I went, you know, on on a Wednesday, I was studying abroad in Spain. I was, you know, living in a foreign country on my own, being independent. And that Saturday night, I was back living with my parents and trying to figure out how to do school online. And I, you know, had never expected to be back at home and I love my parents. But that was, but that was the key, right? The key was that you had no mental preparation for that. You had this plan, this executed, everything was fine. And then as you say, light switch and you're home and everything's different. Your independence in a sense was taken away. Uh, This wonderful experience was taken away and pretty much everyone's so busy taking care of their issues too. You just had to quote, deal with it. Right. I mean, that's kind of the message you probably received to some extent, you know, last spring, the, the major flip in college students lives was not that their classes were all of a sudden online. That transition was kind of the least of their worries when, you know, where we're living, who's around us, our, our entire, yeah, our independence, I think is kind of a key thing there really changed that, you know, now this fall, the reality that we're back on campus, but yet being online still completely, you know, it just feels different. Because it was one thing when students had to go home and everyone was away, but now it feels just much more scattered in a sense. And so everyone's trying to figure out their own ways to stay safe and work through and get the best education that they can um, in using teaching methods and or learning methods that they are not accustomed to or in why not thriving? And and to give a little background, because um, looking at your, you were at what the Universidad de Usto, and you were looking at uh, language building. It sounds like right. Mm-hmm. And uh, was there any opportunity to reengage in that, or was that just a lost opportunity, a lost situation? Well, once I once I came home, um, my you know my Spanish class was able to continue in a virtual format. Um, the teacher, given that that class was international students learning Spanish, that one was able to accommodate different time zones. Um, but the rest of my courses switched to English and all of a sudden I was trying to do classes with a six, seven hour time difference. Um, and they, they did the best they could to accommodate it, but I was, you know, just one of a handful of American students there that were in a completely different time zone that it's just so difficult to find the best answer. You know, is it asynchronous? Is it synchronous? If it's synchronous, then everyone's there and communicating better, but you've got someone who is waking up in the middle of the night. So there's really no good answer. And for me, I was, I tried to be able to keep that up, but 
from going to living immersed in, you know, the Spanish language to back at home with my parents um, was very different and kind of just lost out on a lot of that social development that was supposed to grow with the language skills. Interesting. So how, how, if I could probe a little bit, and if you don't want to go there, that's fine. But just how you personally, um, you, cause you said your answer 12 months ago would have been completely different. Mm-hmm. How, how, how would it be different? Like I, I, you talked about some of your experiences, but now how, how did you apply those experiences? How did, how did that really pull you in mm-hmm. and what, and change your perspective or your bill or your skill set in this area of, of resilience specifically? Yeah. So b- before COVID had even begun, um, this year, you know, what was going to be a large challenge starting, it was like January 15th, I, you know, flew to Spain, hoping to stay there for the next six months. And that was going to be you know, the most independent, the most far away I've been from my family, living in a place where there were no other students from my university anywhere near me. Um, and, you know, the, just the challenges that come with that. And so that was sort of my big step. And I had mentally prepared for that for <laughs> for about a year at that point. And so, you know, challenges that I faced that I had been expecting, you know, not being able to communicate well, I was kind of trained and I couldn't, it was difficult or I wasn't easily frustrated when those difficulties arose because I had, you know, mentally prepped for them or kind of expected them. But, you know, the, the reality is that there's so many unforeseen circumstances that I couldn't have prepared for and I wasn't prepared for. So, you know, my, my housing situation fell through. So I was, for the first two weeks, I was living out of a hostel in Spain. So that was that uncertainty and that, um, no one was there to sort of step in and guide me, you know, as a parent would on a, you know, as a parent, my parents would, when we were traveling other places really caused me to just kind of be as resourceful as I could with communicating. Um, and then once COVID hit, it was very much, you know, being sent home, it really made me more resilient in the sense of realizing who I had become in college. Sorry, pause. Realizing who I had become in college was then so directly, like, ju- what's the word, juxtaposed with mm-hmm. who I was when I was living at home with my parents. Because it was the first time we'd been living together for an extended amount of time since I'd left for college. And so I was able to see just how independent I had become and also just how much I had grown as a person. Um, and so that resilience looked like, you know, making sure I'm still cooking my own food and keeping my own schedule and keeping up a lot of the, you know, activities like working out that I had tried to do, you know, living on my own and independent, but it also kind of been adapting to my parents' general living schedule and timing. And I guess kind of more of like a different, but, um, it also just sparked, you know, having deeper conversations with my parents about topics that they hadn't realized I had learned. And so we were able to go more in depth. So when my dad and I would sit and watch the news every night and we're just getting, you know, bombarded with all this negativity and all this news, we were able to then turn it off and then start talking about what are the historical precedents precedents for this? Um, you know, what are the ways that we can get through it and we can help, you know, our neighbors and help those around us in our community? Um, and how are the ways that we're going to use this experience at home given because we were given the time to reflect and journal and figure out where we're going because it was such a pause how are we going to use that going forward? And so my dad was a great person to kind of talk me through how to build that resilience um, in Mm. the way of reflecting on who I am, um, 
you know, what has gone right and what has gone wrong. And also the main thing, I guess this is probably like a a bigger statement, but um, one of the main things I've begun to try and verbalize as often as possible to begin to start internalizing is this idea of there's things you can control and there's things you can't control and there's no point in stressing over things you can't control. Um, I think a lot of college students were sort of realizing that because what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, whether or not we have in-person classes or not, that's, we can't control that. We can't change that. But how we choose to approach our education, how we choose to approach how we live our lives, um, that is in our control. Mm. And and that reminds me, I read in a book sometime, an acronym called BATNA, B-A-T-N-A, and that's uh, referred to as the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So in your world, for example, you were had this, in a sense, call it an agreement, a plan, an expectation to be in Spain for six months. Two months later, you're not in Spain anymore. <laughs> and and you had to figure out what it, and there was no option, right? There was no, you're not going back. It wasn't going to happen. And so you had to say, okay, what's my BATNA? What's my best alternative to what I was already expecting to happen. And it sounds like you turned that to say, well, I'm at home. I didn't choose. I didn't like, not that you don't want to be at home with your family, but you were at a point of development, right. And and a very rare opportunity, but you said, okay, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of good that can come out of this. Cause I may not, I'm not going to be living at home forever, mm-hmm. but here's an opportunity. And, and it sounds like there was a lot, a lot of relationships that were further developed and, and maybe hit a deeper level because your, your development was appreciated in a different way. Uh, so that's really neat. And I think, um, and I, I'm, I'm part of the reason I'm, I'm reflecting on this right now is because I, I think that resilience is a skill that really needs to be developed, uh, more, more than ever in the, in the young generation. And, uh, but it's hard to tell someone that it's hard to mm-hmm. do that without examples, without maybe some pointers. Cause sometimes, you know, you get in a funk, and you know, you're like, well, this didn't work out. So, you know, if I'm at home, I could do this, I could do that. But sometimes you're just at a point where you have no energy to do any of it because you're just in a funk. <laughs> and so how do you pull yourself out of that? Right. Mm-hmm. And that can be a bit of a conundrum. Um, I'm going to, I'll ask you a question and this is a little sidebar here. Uh, and feel free if you're just like, eh, then I'll just <laughs> jump onto the next one. And so, so with that, Catherine, do you have like, if you had advice to say, you know, because your your situation was certainly unique, and everyone's situation is unique. But any general principles you would say, hey guys, if if you're really struggling with something, or 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 these things like COVID and such, you know, here's some advice. I think the best advice, and I think just the thing that I've thought about so much this past year is really, you know, if you're stuck in that funk, if you are struggling, there's you know, even though we're at this level of independence and development, there are still people that know more and are there to help. Um, so I even, you know, sought the counseling services at my university just to kind of debrief and talk about what had happened and what I experienced and how that had changed me because everything had moved so quickly. So there's always people out there that are there to help and might know just a little bit more or they might be able to realize that you're in an opportunity to learn resilience, but they might have the tools or just the, 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 the means to help, not the means, the, the tools or the ideas or the activities or the questions to ask to help you get to that point to actually 
solidify this as an opportunity and a year and experiences that can build resilience that you'll keep with you the rest of your life. And I want to uh, just pick out something you said that I thought was very interesting is that you you went to counseling services, which uh, I, but I think the key there is you went before it was a crisis. You went on the early side. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there's some wisdom in that in the sense that picking the time prior to it being a massive issue sometimes can prevent it from becoming a massive issue and because you're building those skills before you devolve, if you will, into a depressive state or something like that. And I'm not a mental health counselor. I just want to put that out there for the audience. I'm not, <laughs> you know, aside from taking the, the guard variety psych courses, but I'm absolutely. just, you know, an observer of, of life and people. So I'm speaking from that perspective only <laughs> just to be clear, but, uh, but it, it just strikes me that that there's a, a certain wisdom in identifying a, a pattern and a trend and trying to, um, and, and having the, the wherewithal to seek out help before it becomes something very significant and a and potential crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Catherine, I'm going to jump back a little bit. Uh, earlier you were talking about what people want out of college, what they want those four years to be. And, uh, for some, you know, it may be, uh, just a process or an experience. And, and, and historically, I know from my perspective in my age group, you know, it's, it was always seen as this coming of age, you know, where, where you were exposed to ideas much broader than you might have been exposed before, uh, far beyond that of the actual curriculum. It's just a, it's a whole life experience. Um, and, and some of the things we talked about earlier might have suggest, well, that that may not be quite as a high value, this, uh, this idea that there's just more of a push for uh, being a job skills. Obviously, a lot of this is coming from the fact that tuition costs and the cost of college, attending college, if you will, has gone up so dramatically. So can you speak to, you know, your perspective and of course, as it might represent, you know, part of your, your generation, if you will, on, on how the thinking is of, of the value of college itself from that perspective of what kind of experience do I want that experience? Or is this online option? Is that something that may just in a sense, take over from that value perspective. I could live at home not, and just pay minimal tuition, et cetera. Um, or, or just the, the value of, is it, you know, do most folks want this sort of broader sense of education? I think that's a really interesting thing to bring up now because I, I truly believe that it's fracturing a bit more. You kind of say, you know, your generation had this idea that you're there, the coming of age story. And I think my generation is splintering into different groups of what they're looking for. And I think it's a much more wide variety now that these online options are more readily available and the cost continues to increase for higher education. I think that um, there's a good number of people. I might put myself in this, this category of people that are here for the four year experience because kind of going off of the idea of what their parents did experience and kind of that, that coming of age, that, becoming the full person that you're going to be, which includes the job skills, but also a lot of just the social interactions and the new opportunities and the new opinions that you come across. I think some people, um, I see this as a, a growing number of students are definitely just here for, you know, for the diploma, for the job skills. And I think that is, you know, a completely understandable way, especially with how expensive it's becoming. So even before online schooling was an option, people were pushing the credits to try and graduate in 
know, three and a half semesters or sorry, three years um, and one extra semester or, you know, just three years trying to push themselves as much as possible in a shorter amount of time to cut out that extra year of tuition. And they were willing, you know, I think more people are willing to sacrifice that that last year of social interaction being on the college campus in order to get more job experience or to save the money or be able to just work for a year to pay off some of that college. I think that's a, a growing category. And I think recently this year, with the online option, a lot of students have had to face the idea of, okay, do I you know, stay living at home and save all the money or am I going in person at this point, you know, going in person, risking getting COVID um, and going or, go, you know, and, and going in person to get that social interaction. And I think that's led to a lot of difficult conversations between parents and their kids, because I feel like at this point, especially for freshmen and sophomores, I'd be, you know, living in more dorm styles. Um, it's, you know, a large transition to get to college. And so if that transition is going to be you know, altered because of COVID, they may see that that's not worth the same value as it would be, you know, five, 10 years ago. And so I definitely see, you know, I, I know a number of people that are living at home this, this year simply because it's not financially, it doesn't find, make any financial sense for them to be on campus and put themselves at risk. So I can kind of see that the value of the diploma is not changing drastically, but the value of the experience that goes along with it, I think depending on your circumstance is, is lessening to an extent. And you made an important point right at the, especially right at the end is, um, the use of the value of the diploma has not changed much. And I bring that up because there is a lot of, um, chatter, if you will, and articles and, and, um, opinions that uh, almost indict higher ed of you know, oh they're holding the keys to the degree and and that's it's kind of like their value is built around that degree and and they're going to have to let go of that at some point in a sense basically saying you got to let the companies take over you got to let the companies train this or you got to let you know give them uh, allow them to take uh, this whole whole idea of micro credentials where you mm-hmm. could do a, write a paper and get a a gold star or whatever then and you know you're building these competencies by doing little activities and and all over time you can maybe somehow cobble together a uh, whatever credential that's not called a degree <laughs> is and um and i i think it's kind of at, at least at this point it's uh fraught with more issues than it solves any problems sort of like the MOOCs in the 2000s um but uh, so you have any thoughts or, or any uh, elaborations on the value of the degree as opposed to getting the education without this sort of signifying piece of paper? Well, I definitely, you know, I heard the argument that you're kind of holding the diploma over people's heads to be able to, you know, enter the workforce to actually get the jobs. Um, and I, I think that has some validity because... You know, I don't think I don't think that any non-university program could teach me the skills that I I need to be successful and excel and be competitive in the career market and the job market that I I want to enter and I want to be you know an active participant in. Um, so I think that the value really hasn't changed. And again, I think this you know depends on the major and depends where you're trying to get in life, but. I think for many people, it 
it's hasn't changed and it's not going to change because of just the fundamental skills and the effort that it takes to obtain it that in itself is almost you know that is the education that is the resilience to keep going and to keep you know taking the classes i think is is never really going to change um and i don't think i don't really think it should okay that's good <laughs> i appreciate that uh, and um because I, I think, again, that a lot of these opinions are trying to address a very real mm-hmm. problem, but not necessarily in a way that's fully thought out. Because as I think more and more about the problems of higher ed, the more uh, it's like a bowl of spaghetti where every variable touches every other variable. And it's it's not going to take – it's not going to be a simple fix like, oh, just pass it off to whatever. Because there are – the same reason, again, why I use the MOOCs analogy is you can't just absolve, you know, just throw a bunch of content at someone and and somehow you say now everyone who was given access to this free content has the same degree of competencies because there's absolutely no measure that was done for that. And, and there's, and, or, or even that the content was valid content or that it was absorbed or that competencies were ever developed from that. Uh, and that, that was a huge miss. And there are certainly some useful things, I, I believe, that can come out of the, the MOOC movement, but um, that's just sort of kind of foray and excitement, exuberance over the, the technological possibility of it, I think overwhelmed the thinking and development and implementation of some, some real opportunities. The random analogy that kind of pops to my head is, you know, some professors don't allow laptops in their classes and during lecture, and their argument is always, you know, you can type things out as many times as you want, but there are studies to show when you're writing it by hand on paper, you're going to remember it and you're going to be able to write it again. Um, which just kind of tell you like there is something about, you know, kind of the brick and mortar universities, if you could say kind of something about that, putting in the work and doing it by hand, um, you know, for the, the full time, for the diploma that really just, you know, I guess sticks. I don't know why like that was just the, the little analogy in my head where, you know, no matter what the technology is, writing it down is still always going to be the, the most surefire way to remember it. Sure. Sure. So it's interesting. And and I really appreciate your perspectives, um, especially on some of the, these, these ideas of what college is, what some of the value is from your perspective and, and, and the degree itself and, and what that can mean. Um, and it's interesting, you know, part of the driving force, again, behind all this is, is a real problem of, of tuition costs. And the irony, I imagine, because I don't know, I'm not a student nowadays in, in college, is seeing while tuition mm-hmm. is at all time high, you know, there's budget cuts, budget cuts, budget cuts always in the news. I know there's, there's a, a university uh, or several universities that you know, have just been eviscerated and hundreds and hundreds of jobs cut and there's massive protests and, and notwithstanding, you know, not making a value statement on any of that per se, but more just from a student perception, because really the, at least from my perspective and, and, and academic side, you know, we kind of get a lot of the chatter, if you will. And, and it strikes me that the students don't always may not receive the communication as to what's really about why things are happening a certain way. Um, from your perspective, is that the case or, or do you have thoughts on when you see this, do you like, 
man, I, I wish I knew, or maybe I don't do know. And I am concerned or confused. Yeah, well, right away, um, looking at the face of the issue, it is pretty frustrating. You hear the jokes going around about why is our tuition being raised? And then they're making comments about budget cuts. It seems, you know, very counterintuitive for what we're expecting because if our costs are going up, where is that going? Um, so that's like a, a big question that is always floating around nonchalantly or pretty seriously among friends and among students. But I think a lot of us don't do a lot of the, the deep research into what are the large kind of like systemic issues that are that are causing that. And I think there are some really amazing groups on my campus that are looking into those issues. And especially um, you know, my university is facing budget cuts as well. Um, that have been exasperated, that were planned out, but are now accelerated because of COVID. Um, and so there's been a lot of kind of social outcry among, especially among the students that know that their professors or their, um, you know, their teachers are going to be directly impacted by those cuts. Um, so I think there is, depending on, on, you know, depending on where you are in the university and where, you know, your concern is personally, if, you know, seeing these, these, um, these costs rise is going to be, you know, putting even more strain on your family and, you know, you personally, then I can see you being more frustrated about where is that money going if it's continuing to hurt me more, even during COVID when, you know, it is more difficult. Um, but I think a lot of these groups are doing a really good job just kind of asking the questions. But I think there's still the question of do students you know, regardless of how much they research and all the documents they read, do we really know the full scale and plan of a large institution like a university? Um, do we kind of have the knowledge to speak on these issues? Because um, we're the ones, you know, that are paying into it, but we're not the ones that were here 10 years ago when the financial plan was created. And we're not the ones who have any control over, you know, just demographic and, you know, unforeseen circumstances like COVID. So, it's kind of kind of a mixed bag as far as um, you know, kind of responses to it and actions about it. Very nice, thank you. Um, so, zooming out and and you've because you've addressed a lot of issues related to higher education and some of the forces facing mm -hmm. higher education, and no doubt is it changing or will change in the coming years rather dramatically. So. Based on what you've been talking about, maybe tell me what you think should not change from a university, from a student perspective and a student experience, what you just couldn't not have out of college, and maybe some things that, yeah, we could change that, we could change that, because we know cost is an issue, that's got to go down, but you know, what, what things are you okay letting go of, and what things can you just not let go of? Build my own dream university here now. <laughs> Yeah, actually, and, and that is another way to couch the question is, if you could build the new university, what would it look like? Well, as someone who I, is not the best at online learning, I'm very much an in-person, face-to-face communication, per, communication person. Um, universities can't turn completely online. I think that there's you know many different reasons for this. And although it saves costs, you know, this is the dream university where COVID is not a factor at that point. Um, I think that the face-to-face -face interaction and in-person classes are essential um, to the way that so many students learn and to the way that so many students learn to interact in those types of group settings. I think, you know, in-person group projects, 
discussions about difficult topics. Those those need to stay um, to help us become better people. I also think, um, you know, I think I think dorms need to stay. I think kind of having the option for that in between of, you know, get, just having the options of not living at home with your parents, but not fully on your own yet. I think that is a super valuable thing. And that's where you get a lot of the, the cliche, goofy, late night coming of age sort of events that can really kind of solidify parts of your personality and who you want to be growing up and also learning lessons about who you want to be around when you grow up. Um, kind of the types of people that, you know, you would benefit by being around. I think that, let me think what else. I think, well, a minor issue, I think, I mean, I think college athletics and college student organizations absolutely need to stay. I think they're a great way to teach students leadership opportunities. So regardless of whether they're you know, social fraternities, or if they're academic clubs, or if they're social justice clubs or service clubs, I think those are really essential for students to continue to figure out where they want to go. And I've seen multiple cases where involvement in those clubs has actually led students to finding that first job out of college or, you know, getting the internship with the organization that helps fund one of their clubs. So I think that's super essential and kind of quintessential to the college experience. I'm trying to think of more things that should go. I want to say homework and stuff like that, but I really do enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, yeah, I, I hear that. Um, let me ask you though, you, you mentioned athletics. Can, can you perhaps feather out for me what athletics must stay versus, I mean, does it have to be, for example, you know, the, the, the major football team, baseball team, whatever, or, would intramural athletics be enough or club athletics or does it have to be this kind of like, you know, D one type attitude or that, you know, the big 10, that sort of thing. Growing up in Madison where every Saturday is Wisconsin football day. Um, I definitely see how the big D one sports build the culture and they not only build just kind of like the social culture around students, they definitely also bring the alumni and are kind of a uniting force in that sense. But then having chosen a university that doesn't have football, um, I can see how it can shift other sports such as basketball. But I think just having the, the D1 sports and kind of that level of, you know, our, our peak um, athletics are really a, a bonding thing. Um, I don't really know the details of, you know, how much funding and that sort of thing. I think, you know, they've, it's become such a for-profit organization, even though the students aren't seeing any of it. Um, but I, I don't want to go too much into that because I really am not <laughs> too keen on exactly where all the funding for that comes from and where it goes. But um, I do see merit in that. And I do see merit in having the intramural and the you know smaller club sports that are really able to allow students to continue to be athletic because that's an outlet for a lot of us. And being able to you know, go to a gym and go for a run or work with a team is a way that we're able to just build strong relationships and also as a way to help with our mental health. I think if sports were to disappear from college campuses, a lot of students would, as we're seeing this year when, you know, not as many sports are happening, just a lot more pent up energy and a lot more issues that can occur when there's not that, that outlet for all students. Okay. So 
if I could hone a little bit your some of your ideas. I mean, when I say hone, um, just nudge. Like you said, we we gotta let or gotta keep dorms, but and not do fully online. So if if I read between the lines, there you're saying it sounds like online could ramp up. Don't want to have it overwhelm everything and become the only option. So online could have a greater presence, and it sounds like then dorms, you need to still have a presence, but maybe those are attenuated to some extent. Um, and, and I think the broader message, as you're saying, is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of good stuff here. Don't just uh, flip the model 100%. But there's some trends that you can nudge towards, but don't give up some of these experiences that people really want. Is that is that fair to say? Definitely. I think also another way to look at it is don't go with whatever just cuts the most cost for you guys or you know, for administration and universities um, when it's going to cut. I won't take that as a personal <laughs> indictment. Don't worry. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, don't cut the things that make college college um, simply because it saves their bottom line. I think there's other ways that we need to you know, reimagine and reconfigure um, how funding looks for educate for, for higher education. And I'm not, you know, an expert in any way or even a finance major to kind of go into those details of institutions. But um, I think there needs to be another alternative or other alternatives. Yeah, I, I particularly appreciate that comment because I, I, well, I totally agree with it. Let's put it that way in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of forces and issues that need to be dealt with in higher ed, but we don't want to lose what people want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. We need to provide a different way of delivering it maybe, or provide more options, but there's still a lot of this. We don't want to lose the essence of what it is. And, and, and I think that's, that's a, a super point. And I, I love that it's coming from you because I feel like that you meaning your, your age, your generation, you're in college. Um, but you're, you know, have you, you get that there's certain things that we just can't let go. You don't want to just drop it. And so I think that message needs to be heard by the broader audience, because I think that broader audience or, you know, a lot of the press again is pushing this notion of, you know, tech will save it. Tech will save it. Just be, you know, and I'm saying thinking just cause you can, doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways you can't, you can make it super cheap, you know, you know, that, but you don't want to just, what are we doing here? What is, what, is, what is our point? You know, uh, what is education's point? Um, so, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine, I think now that you've given us what is is valuable or most valuable from your perspective of what universities need to do, and I think the very germane point is that we need to look very hard at a way of solving these problems but not lose the essence of what higher education brings us. And I think that is a, an amazing, almost like a, a poster you should put over, you know, on your wall in your office or my office to remind myself every day that that's the goal. The goal isn't to balance the budget. The goal is to balance the budget with that in mind and, and to maintain that experience in the student student centeredness. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll thank you for, for coming on. And I can't thank you enough for, for agreeing to participate, especially as at the time of this recording, we have not actually released the podcast. So you, you know, met this stranger on LinkedIn who claimed you had a podcast and you, uh, you know, agreed to, to take a chance and record it. So, uh, again, I really appreciate that you, you just said, Hey, let's, let's do this. Thank you so much. It's also been an amazing opportunity to 
you know, make myself ask, ask myself these questions and just the opportunity to think these things out loud, especially as I'm kind of finishing up my university experience. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening to Reckoning Higher Ed, a podcast dedicated to understanding the issues facing higher ed today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to like it and be sure to subscribe and pass it on to people you might think enjoy the podcast. Um, So far, it's been a very interesting experience and it has been growing steadily. And I just wish people to share it and people listen if they find it fruitful. Thank you so much. And until next time.